Today's show is brought to you by Harry's. Please visit harrys.com and use the promo code WWII to shave $5 off your first purchase. Get it? And believe me when I say, guys, you will love me for this. Using Harry's is the most fun I've ever had by myself. It's that good. Once I started using Harry's razor and foaming shave gel, I realized up until now, I've been using toys, plastic toys, to shave my face. But not anymore. When you shave with Harry's, it's like you're just wiping the hair off your face. And the soft bar it has above the razors is so soothing. Okay, let me give you some details. Harry's.com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men. And believe me, they succeeded. Everything about it, from the box it came into, to the razor, to the aftershave lotion or foaming shave gel, was just a quality experience. It's the nicest thing I've ever done for myself. Harry's delivers a superior shave. The shape of the handle is smooth, but thicker, so you get a really good grip, and so you can get to those really hard-to-get-at places. Now, when I got my Harry's box in the mail, I had decided it was time for the winter beard to go. So, I go into the bathroom, open up the box, take everything out, look through everything, and it's got some good, uh, helpful tips on how to use their products. So, I shave everything off, and I come out to the wife. She puts her hand on my face and says, Ooh, nice. Then the nine-year-old, who copies her mom and everything, walks up to me, touches my face, and says, Ooh, nice. But then the six-year-old comes up to me, puts her hand on my face, and rubs it, puts her other hand to the other side, and rubs that, and then rubs it really hard, and says, Your face is like my butt! That actually happened. So guys, if you want a jaw as smooth as a... you get the idea. Now, Harry's bought a blade factory in Germany that has been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a century. But then they decided to cut out the middleman and offer an amazing shave for a fraction of the price from drugstores. And the good news is, their starter kit is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. I really liked the foaming shave gel. You just put a little in, work it up, you can cover your face, and wipe it all away with the blade. But, as an added bonus, you get $5 off of your first purchase with my code, again, WWII. Which means you get all this and a month's worth of shaving for just $10. And because it's Harry's, it's quality. Shipping is always free. So, no more thinking, you've got a good deal, but then you see the shipping charges. So, I'm telling you guys, this is something you do not want to miss. You have to give it a try. Go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot C-O-M, and put in the World War II podcast code, W-W-I-I. So, give yourself a month of great shaves, for only $10. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 123, Crete, Part 4. Last time, the Allied ground forces on Crete had completed their retreat to Plantinius, halfway between the Melemay airfield and Kenia by the early afternoon of May 23rd. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy was still having a go at stopping the seaborne reinforcements from Milos from reaching the island. 
They had been successful in doing this, but on the other side of the coin, the Luftwaffe had been equally successful in sinking or damaging way too many of Cunningham's ships for him to consider further operations in the area. Yet, this was the Royal Navy. Nelson was watching them to see if they measured up. So, that night of May 22nd, after Force C under King and Force A-1 under Rawlings had taken a pounding, the Kashmir, Kelly, and Kipling were sent to rescue as many of the crew of the sunken Fiji as possible. But because there was, now, such a shortage of ships, these three vessels also spent the night intercepting keikis and occasionally shelling the Malema airfield when they were close enough. All this, however, meant that they were still within German air power when the sun came up on the 23rd. The Kelly and the Kashmir were chased by 24 bombers and eventually sunk. But the Germans weren't done. They knew that many of the survivors would be picked up and again, one day soon, would be aboard another ship fighting against the Axis. So, whether they were ordered to or the decision was made locally, the men in the water were soon strafed by those 24 aircraft. This, however, did not sit well with able seaman Ian Dusty Rhodes, who then swam back to that half of the Kashmir not underwater, manned one of the guns, and fired on the now low-flying bombers. Soon one of their number was seen crashing into the waves. The rest of the bombers then concentrated on the still-floating part of the ship, until it, too, disappeared. Dusty then swam away from the ship and back to his mates. He was later awarded the Conspicuous Gallantry Medal. Later that day, the Kipling, the lone survivor, returned to the area, survived 83 bombs that came down near her, and saved 279 men, including Lord Mountbatten. As May 23rd went by, Cunningham had to acknowledge that every ship of the 5th Destroyer Flotilla had either been sunk or damaged, and so the Admiral recalled the remaining ships of the flotilla back to Alexandria. Yet even this was caused by faulty intelligence, or rather, faulty signaling. Rear Admiral Rawlings had meant to send a signal stating that his remaining ships had plenty of short-range anti-aircraft ammunition, and Rawlings knew what this would mean for his ships. They would be ordered to stay in the area, look for survivors, harass Melame, and keep those keikis from reaching Crete. That was their job. Yet, when the message was sent out, the word plenty was sent as empty. This was not a sign of cowardice but a simple mistake. But it caused the Admiral to pull back his ships, who he believed could not defend themselves, and incidentally probably saved them from meeting the same fate as the other vessels. Which was just as well as the Battle of Crete was being lost on land. Besides, Signal's intelligence had told Cunningham there would be no further attempts by the Germans to land men on Crete via the sea. Now, this was being decided and put into action by Cunningham on late May 22nd, early May 23rd. But later in the day of May 23rd, the Admiralty sent Cunningham a message that said it was, quote, vitally important to prevent seaborne expeditions reaching the island in the next day or two, even if this results in further losses to the fleet, unquote. 
Cunningham, none too gently, reminded those back in London that his ships were operating from a base 400 miles away. They had to refuel and rearm. And any action he took against further seaborne reinforcements could not justify losses like those of May 22nd. He ended with, quote, This is a melancholy conclusion, but it must be faced. Unquote. Churchill, no one will be surprised, exploded when he heard this. That's what the damned Mediterranean fleet is for, he thundered. But the Admiralty interjected itself in between the two headstrong men and stated, thinking they were helping, by saying that if we halted operations now, the Germans would be able to send sizable reinforcements, which meant the game would be up. So, even if he, Cunningham, had to operate during the day and sustain more losses, it would be worth it to save Crete. But this was not Wavell or Longmore, the theater commander of the RAF they were writing to. And, as it was obvious that this sentiment had its real origins emanating from the Prime Minister, Cunningham wrote back and explained to those colleagues thousands of miles away that it made no sense to continue to engage lose more men and ships if, and this is the important part, there was nothing to show for it. His ships would be sunk or damaged until he had none left, and then the Germans would send men to the island anyhow. He wanted a game-changer as much as they did, but making the same mistake over and expecting different results was not the answer. If Cunningham's point of view needed reinforcing, and an admiral's view who was in the theater of war normally didn't, the admiral was informed as his message was about to go out that the aircraft carrier Illustrious had been bombed and now had a 30-foot hole in it. What's more, the cruiser Nubian had also taken a beating. And just to further make the admiral's point, which he could have certainly done without, the battleship Barham was damaged by 15 bombers the next day. Yet the battle for Crete, as well as the one shaping up between Cunningham and London, was far from over. On May 23rd, the destroyer Glenroy left Alexandria with an infantry battalion, escorted by the anti-aircraft cruiser Coventry. These were the reinforcements Freiburg desperately needed. But when Cunningham realized the men would be approaching the island during the day and thus would be at the mercy of the Luftwaffe, he called it back. But then the Admiralty issued counter-orders for the Glenroy to turn back around and make for the island. This maneuver again reeked of Churchill, who was obsessed with not only saving Crete to further secure Egypt, but was tired of successful evacuations. Before an hour had passed, the twirling ships were ordered by Cunningham again to make for Alexandria. This transporting of troops would be tried again by the Glenroy on the 26th, but, as predicted by Cunningham, the ship was hunted down, bombed, and caught fire, only to then return to Egypt in its now-damaged state. And not that it meant much, but a contingent of commandos under Colonel Laycock did reach the island during the night of May 24th, but by then their job would be nothing more than to cover the further retreat of those troops already on the island. It had to be clear to all now, or at least it should have been, that air power was dominant. To control the sea was one thing, but without equal control of the air, 
Naval power was no longer the end game it once had been. Meanwhile, the Battle of Retitmo was being fought along different lines, and thus had its own outcome. Not that it mattered, as the events near Meleme would soon dominate the island. But they're worth pointing out. Colonel Campbell, who had been stationed at Hill A, in between the airfield and the olive oil factory to its east, the hill was just off the coast road, had lost the hill on the first day, and knew his number one priority was getting it back, as its heights dominated the area near the airfield. Meanwhile, Major Sandover, in charge of Hill B, to the west of Hill A, knew he had to hold on there, because not only was the beach to his north nice and flat for the landing of seaborne troops, but the coast road itself in that section was long and level enough to land aircraft if needed. And these two men figured out by the end of the first day of fighting that they had to hit the Germans hard, constantly, but only at night, thus negating their air power, which is what they did. It soon seemed to the Germans that they were outnumbered, which they were not, as the Anzacs charged their positions several times a night. Colonel Campbell had to attack Hill A five times before the Germans gave over, and even then his success only came as he attacked after a German bomber attacked his own countrymen, killing 16 of them. This allowed Captain Moriarty to lead a force against these still-shaken men, who soon ran down the northern side of the hill. These men were led by Major Crow of the 1st Battalion, who found their way to the olive oil factory to the east of the airfield. As this went on, Major Sandover held Hill B from the Germans, and even managed to capture Colonel Sturm's detachment as they tried to rush the height. As for those Germans to the west of Hill B, and yet east of the town of Retitmo, around Perivolia, they wisely stayed in place and dug in. The end result being the Germans were split and harassed at night, while the Allies laid low during the day. But as well as things were going for the Anzac forces around Retitmo, detainment wasn't Campbell's job. His job was to make the area completely secure from the enemy. So, an attack was planned against Crow and his men at the olive oil factory on May 22nd. Unfortunately for Campbell, he lost the services of the inspiring Moriarty, who fell to the bullet of a sniper. This meant that Campbell had to lead the assault himself. So, choosing 200 men, he made his way to the factory and planned on having some Greek soldiers from the 5th Battalion approach from a different direction. Yet when the attack commenced, the Greeks, for whatever reason, did not join in. Soon Campbell and his were pinned down behind a dirt bank in front of the factory. Nothing was going to be accomplished here except death. So waiting until dark, the Allies moved away back to Hill A. At Periviolia, two kilometers east of Retitmo, Captain Weidman attacked the Australians closest to him after they were strafed by a German fighter and had lost 39 men. Yet when the Germans came on, it was nothing more than a straight lunge. The Aussies were hurting, but not out of it. Even the wounded manned their guns and shot down the Germans who approached. Eventually, they caused enough German casualties for the aggressors to return to the town. 
Then, using some capture signals on May 23rd, the Australians brought down German bombs from German planes on their enemy just ahead of them. This infuriated Captain Weidmann, but he had no choice but to back further into the town, now stationing himself in the St. George's Church. The situation became another stalemate. The only difference was the Germans were now even further from Hill B. Only on May 25th did Campbell give it another go at the olive oil factory, but this time supported by a tank and a 75mm gun. The large guns thundered at the factory, shaking the Germans, who hunkered down. Then the Anzacs rushed in and captured 82 prisoners. Yet again, Major Crow and a few others escaped. To the west, after waiting 24 hours, Sandover went after the Germans in Perivioli again, but this time had the tanks that Campbell had used. The church was turned to rubble by two anti-tank guns, which caused the Germans to flee deeper into the city. Then the tanks were used to follow them up. But soon anti-tank fire from the beleaguered Germans damaged the tanks enough for Sandover to call them back. He might not have captured them, but the Germans of Weidmann were not assisting in capturing the island. Yet, it must be said, they were certainly tying down men and material that could have been used at Melame. Meanwhile, at Heraklion, further to the east, the situation for the Germans was even worse. Most of the Germans that had survived their descent from the JUs, roughly 600 out of the 2,000, had been pushed two miles to the southeast, away from the airfield, by May 22nd, the second day of fighting. They now controlled the heights at Amon's Ridge, but there threatened no one. But to engage thus weakened would have brought them the same fate as those 950 dead comrades near the airfield, or the 600 fallen men near the town itself, or the 300 dead German paratroops scattered around the various hills to the south of the town and airfield whereas the Australians and British had lost around 50 men. And those few hundred Germans were low on water and ammunition. Yet each time they ventured out to look for either, more men were lost to snipers. This wasn't Retitmo, where there had been agreed to truces during some nights to look for wounded. The Cretan fighters around Heraklion were out for German blood. There were no rules. Yet, it could have been worse for the invaders. Brigadier Chapel, the commander of the forces at Heraklion, did not, as ordered by Freiburg, move some of his men west and clear the area in between Heraklion and Retitmo. Had he done so, it probably would have brought him more prisoners to deal with, but honestly, not make a difference around Kenia. Yet the brigadier chose to focus solely making sure his airfield and his harbor were safe. From the Germans. They were, but that was mostly because of the German bloodletting as those men floated down from the sky the first day of the battle. The airfield was not again threatened by them. And one can't help but ask, if Chapel knew of the surviving Germans' conditions, there was rampant dysentery and diarrhea due to drinking unsafe water from the streams, would he have launched a large attack to the west? Yet it must be said, in Chapel's defense, communication between himself and Freiburg was almost non-existent. 
In fact, it would not be until May 26th, the struggle for the island all but over by then, before Chapel got a message through to his commanding officer, asking if he should attack to the west. But there was no response, either because the signal did not get through, or because HQ was too busy dealing with what was right in front of them, namely Ringel's Germans. Now that Melemay Airfield was secured by the invaders, Ringel bided his time, allowing further reinforcements to land and for the newly arrived supplies to be divvied up. This was a most un-German gamble on his part, as Berlin had made it clear that they expected the return of many of their fighters and bombers by May 25th for Germany's next great offensive against Russia. Yet the commanding general allowed a few days of the third week of May to go by, and probably expecting his phone or wireless device to bring him questions about his offensive or the expected return date of many of his planes, Ringel started his assault that very day, May 25th. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Yet, of his now overwhelming force, Ringel had already sent the Mountain Pioneer Battalion, under Major Schott, west, to engage the 8th Greek Regiment at Kisamos Costelli, to free any German prisoners and make the area safe for the landing of tanks. As Schott's men came closer to Costelli, they began to find men from Lieutenant Merb's detachment that hadn't been lucky enough to become prisoners, being protected by the British. As for those corpses on the ground, it was clear that hideous things had been done to their eyes and faces, probably before death. Schott's men vowed revenge, guessing it wasn't the British that had done this. The locals and Greeks were going to pay. Any civilian with a weapon would be shot out of hand. Any German soldier killed by a local would result in the death of ten civilians. The Cretans would be brought to heel. Not being able to move fast enough to satisfy himself, Schott had the Luftwaffe bomb the prison house where the German survivors were being held. The men there then escaped and overran the local Allied headquarters, Major Betting and his second lieutenant, Binet, being captured 
Lieutenants Campbell and York attempted a rescue mission, but failed, and the former was killed. But true relief for the Germans was on the way. Schott was coming as fast as he could, with anti-tank weapons. This number of enemy troops, with this kind of firepower, drove the Greeks back to Castelli proper, to protect their families and friends. But making it worse, the defenders had already used up a major portion of their ammunition by now. So they did what they could, by charging at the Germans with bayonets fixed. At least 200 Greeks, or locals, were killed in the attempt. With the resistance so broken, the Germans reached the center of the town and declared it theirs, and victory. The rest of the story of the defense in the West unfolded. The Greeks used what German weapons they had captured, fought from house to house. That is, until the Germans used their anti-tank weapons to level, literally, every house contested. Then those Greeks who had survived, or had not been captured, left the city to begin their guerrilla campaign. Soon after the city was truly theirs, the Germans gathered 200 locals, took them to the middle of town, and shot them, to show that resistance or the mutilation of German soldiers would not be tolerated. With the far west or the airfield's rear secured, Ringo was ready to move towards Kenia, but first he had to deal with the Allies and their defensive line at Plantinius. As noted earlier, the Anzac forces had completed their withdrawal by 2 p.m. of May 23rd. And only by later that afternoon did the guns of the German 95th Mountain Artillery Regiment begin shelling the most forward units of the Allies. Soon after, the Germans moved forward, and the two sides clashed, with much of the fighting taking place near the Plantinius Bridge and along the coast road. But then hope reared its head towards the Australians and New Zealanders as the RAF bombed the airfield at Melame, but little true damage was done. By late that afternoon, it was clear to Hargest and Puttick that the artillery attack was only a diversion. While this was going on, the 2nd Battalion of the 85th Mountain Division was circling, coming ever closer to cutting off many of the New Zealanders from Gatilis, further to the east. This could not be allowed to happen, as it would shorten the battle for Kenia. So that night, the Allies moved back again this time to the far side of Galatas and just in front of General Hospital, only three kilometers from the outskirts of Kenia. But the Germans stayed hard upon the defenders, trying various tactical tricks, like encircling smaller groups of New Zealanders. But each time, they were stopped, first by the men of the 28th and then again by the 8th Greek Regiment. Each time the defenders allowed the Germans to come in close, and then wheeled around and charged, bayonets fixed. As ground was lost and men were killed or wounded, Freiburg lost heart. In this mindset, he wrote to Wavell and Cunningham that his only two options were defeat and capture or withdraw. Then amazingly, Freiburg's chief of staff wrote a much more glowing assessment to the same two men stating that if they could just hold out, the Germans' drive would lose its momentum. Then it might be possible to counterattack. But this, besides breaking protocol, again reeked of Churchill. 
Mercifully, the Germans to the south, near the prison valley, were still too weak to join in on the assault. Had they the strength, the advance from the south and west would have completely overwhelmed the defenders. But almost as bad, the Luftwaffe was attempting to shorten the war on their own by obliterating Kania. And this had started on the 24th. The idea was not only to overwhelm the defenders and the citizens they were defending, but also to wipe out any supplies or communications between the headquarters and the Allied front at Galatas. On the 24th, the aerial bombardment had lasted for four hours. And the bombing campaign worked. How could it not? It wouldn't do anyone any good for Freiburg to be killed by a lucky bomb. So that evening, the ranking Allied commander moved his headquarters to Suda Bay. The town he left was, by then, nothing more than rubble. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.